happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On the Bechdel cast, the questions asked if movies have women in them. Are all their discussions just boyfriends and husbands, or do they have individualism? The patriarchy's effing vast. Start changing it with the Bechdel cast. Hey, Jamie. Hey, Caitlin. Pick a card, any card, and look closely at it. No, wait, you're looking too closely because you thought the magic was happening right here, but it's actually happening over there. I was misdirecting you. Oh, Oh my God. Should we kiss? Yeah, are you so horny right now for me? Oh my God, I know. For some reason I am. Okay, quick anecdote at the very top of the episode. This happened to me in college where okay. I was at a bar. There's a magician doing like close-up card tricks mm-hmm. and there was a mentalist mm-hmm. and they were there together doing illusions. I love this story. <laughs> I haven't heard this one in a while. Oh, I've told it to you. Okay. Yes. But I don't know if I've ever... Have I said it on the podcast? If so... I don't think so. He, here's a, a... Please make it canon. Okay. So they're like doing tricks. I go over to them and I'm like, wow, this is cool. I love magic. And they're like, wow, a woman is talking to us. Mm-hmm. So they did a bunch of tricks and I was awestruck. Love it. And then I said to neither of them in particular, but also kind of both of them, do you want to go on a date with me sometime? Mm-hmm. And they were like, uh-huh. So we arranged a date, although I was mostly talking to the magician over the, the mentalist guy. So I was talking to the magician. Mm-hmm. We were corresponding, texting, setting up the date. I show up to the date. They are both there. Because again, I did not ask... I, I directed my question into the ether, I, not at a specific person. I think you're being too hard on yourself in this situation. Well, I'm, I'm <laughs> they not. They should have known to not both show up. <laughs> but also, I'm fine that they both did. And actually, in an ideal world, I would have just a, a harem of multiple partners mm-hmm. following me around. <laughs> Sure. So, I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to happen, but it is something that you would want to check in advance before. <laughs> yes, but I don't I don't fault myself nor the other people involved that they both showed up and it was actually awesome and fine. And then the mm-hmm. whole date, they just did more tricks, <gasps> which again was fine. That's kind of why I wanted to hang out with them more. Mm-hmm. And then the magician was like, hey, we should hang out again sometime. And then I kind of bailed. 
and then we remained like friendly and i think he lives in la now but Mm. uh if today he was like hey do you want to catch up sometime i'd be like sure (laughs) so that's my awesome story and today's movie is about now you see me what if you're like and today we're doing the godfather and it had nothing to do with anything (laughs) you're like i just have been wanting to get this off my chest for five years (laughs) that's and that's what you call a misdirect and that's a misdirect jesse eisenberg geez (laughs) oh my god the star of this movie is jesse eisenberg's haircut Like oh the most gosh. 2013 thing I've ever seen in my life where I felt it in my entire body when they revealed the haircut where you're like, wow, that's a haircut that didn't exist out of outside of that year. And people didn't even like it when it was there. It wasn't good at the time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yes, that's all the context you need to know going into this episode. I think that was a perfect introduction. Welcome to the Bechtel cast. I was going to say poof. So, oh, wow. I was going to mine was going to be much quicker. <laughs> But I don't think as rich of a text. I mean, abracadabra, let her rip. Exactly. Uh, to quote that song from Aladdin. I was, I was about to say, that they didn't say that. Jesse Eisenberg didn't say that. No, no. <laughs> That's not magician canon, because Jesse Eisenberg didn't say it in this movie. Okay. It's the Now You See Me episode of the Bechtel cast. This is our show where we take a look at your favorite movies using an intersectional feminist lens. My name's Jamie Loftus. Ta-da! Ta-da! <laughs> I feel bad because we have like a legitimately extremely talented magician as our guest today, and we <laughs> visibly know nothing. We don't know what we're talking about. We are absolutely blowing it. And so we've brought in an expert <laughs> who we've seen perform before. She's fucking amazing. Mm. And please tear us to shreds <laughs> at any time. <laughs> We welcome it. Psychologically. It doesn't need to be via magic. (laughs) Just psychologically (laughs) destroy us. It's not hard. True. Um, So this is the Bechtel cast. Uh, (laughs) uh, Caitlin, what is the Bechtel test, though? I don't remember. Well, let me jog your memory. I did hypnotize you and made you forget what the Bechtel test was. Oh, my God. So my bad. I know. I think I'm playing Beethoven. I'm Mm. like, I'm like Common, who's in this movie for like, two minutes and then he keeps disappearing for an hour and then he comes back and you're like officer common poor common you're back. he is too good for this i mean yeah <laughs> who is i mean you know okay the bechtel test is a media metric created by queer cartoonist allison bechtel mm-hmm. sometimes known as the bechtel wallace test mm-hmm. there are many versions of the test the one that we use mm-hmm. requires that two people of a marginalized gender have names they talk to each other about something other than a man for two lines of dialogue and ideally it's a narratively meaningful conversation there's a lot i mean look we'll get into it uh (laughs) (laughs) tricky 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 um so yeah we we're covering now you see me and we have a wonderful guest with us i'm so excited to have her so let's let's get her on so she can destroy us like we deserve she's a magician host of shezam podcast it's kayla drescher Hey, everyone. Uh, I will not destroy you because all of my energy will go into destroying this movie. So uh, just know you're safe for today. But I also really appreciate that you hit every 
magician trope in the first 30 seconds of this episode. So I applaud you. Honestly, it was like a feat. I'm really impressed. We are problematic when it comes to the representation of magicians in media. That's fine. Honestly, so was the movie. Uh, so I'm fine. I'm so excited to talk about it. I oh my gosh, there are so many. I will say, when the twist of the movie was revealed at the very end, the twist that makes no sense and only introduces mm. more questions. Yeah. I gasped. I didn't see it coming. I was shocked. I was bowled over. Well, you don't see it coming because it's it doesn't the make least sense. logical thing to happen in the movie. It's foreshadowed by nothing. And it's foreshadowed by a bunch of shots that are like Mark Ruffalo posing like he's Mr. Robot. He's like Rami Malek in Mr. Robot <laughs> in all of the foreshadowing shots where it's just like lone guy in a hoodie i was like that's (laughs) sir that role is taken okay also i love you want emmys for that i love that you were like that's the least logical thing in the entire movie when (laughs) literally someone floated above an audience in a bubble like Mm -hmm. that says a lot it does call into question like is there actual like wizard style supernatural magic happening sometimes or is it are they just using illusion it's there's a lot of questions i have there has to there right so there's it's a really interesting conversation because uh a lot of magicians also tend to also be in the skepticism worlds Mm. and so you have people like amazing randy who spent a large portion of his career trying to take down Uri Geller, who's a magician who claims he has actual superpowers. And because he has actual superpowers, he can bend spoons. And so mm. uh, he would, that that's his entire life is he's just claiming he has some sort of unnatural power being thing. And a lot wow. of magicians, there's a really fine line, especially when you get into the mentalism realm and mm-hmm. kind of the like influencing and all of that. It starts to get into a little bit of a fine line of that you have to be careful of to make sure the audience knows that you're not a psychic and there are many mentalists that after shows get approached and get asked like, hey, can you contact my dead sister? Like, you know, so it does tell a really, really careful very thin line between doing magic for entertainment and being what I would consider more of a swindler because a lot of those people Mm -hmm. will use this what what I know like I know how it's being done if I go see a psychic I know how it's being done am I going to say that that doesn't exist in the world I'm not going to discount it I don't think it's an mm-hmm. a, a unrealistic possibility, but I know mm-hmm. a lot of how that is done. And because of that, there's that line where you can really easily step over it when you start taking people's money because you're going to do something that they're hoping for. Mm-hmm. And so it is really, really, it's a really big topic of conversation and magic on a regular basis. Hmm. Kayla, I need to interview you for the other podcast I'm working on. It's all about spiritualism okay oh cool oh that's so cool wow let's we'll put a pin in that on mike but i have so many questions for you okay okay great (laughs) um so kayla what is your history your relationship with the movie or maybe the franchise even because there's a sequel and then there's i think a third movie in development or in production they're gonna do another one i believe so wow i saw it on imdb now you see three what (laughs) okay so we're focusing on the first now you see me what is your relationship to that film so obviously as you mentioned i'm a magician that's my career 
And so mm-hmm. whenever a movie gets made about your career, you want to know how your career is being portrayed in a movie that's going to be seen mm-hmm. by a lot of people, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's really interesting. This movie is from 2013, and I'm still today getting asked about that movie. And even just like <laughs> two weeks ago, someone mentioned like, oh, have you seen that movie? Like, what do you think of it? Because I thought it was really cool. And when the movie came out, and this was not due to the movie, but it just is like how people think. Before the movie came out, I got a call once. They wanted me to, in a show, play the piano and then float the piano while I was playing it. And I was like, cool. So that's going to, like, we're talking a starting price here of 20 grand because not only is it my fee, but you're going to have to have that built by an illusion designer from scratch because that does not yet, as of today, exist. Right. And they were like, we were hoping you could do it for $200. And I was like, you're cute. I'm not, that's not possible. Uh, you know, do you think I'm a cartoon character? Like, right. that's, but her, oh my gosh. her actual reaction to that was, I thought you could just do magic. And it's like, oh, okay. So there's always this line mm-hmm. that that when people call you asking to hire you for something, there's a concern that there's actual superpower things going on here. And then after the movie came out, I can't tell you how many calls I got asking if I could float in a bubble. What? For like a year. Really? Yeah. Just constantly. Uh-huh. It was, yeah, you were wondering like, we're not a big budget, but wondering if you could do that thing in the movie. And it's like, I. so I would like to now explain to you what CGI is. <laughs> and not particularly good CGI either. That's mm. very accurate. There was a tour... <laughs> called the Now You See Me tour that a friend of mine did work on. And they did, I believe, a floating bubble illusion. But you better believe that took a long, long time and lots of money to put together. So sure, that stuff's not like if you're doing it in front of an audience, even like Copperfield's flying illusion from the 90s like that, that was amazing. But if you saw it live, there were things that you're like, oh, that's maybe a bit wonky. Like I wasn't. Was, I was expecting mm-hmm. that to look like he was flying. And so there are people really think like with magic, it's really easy and it's not at all. And when a movie like this comes out, it just sort of pushes the narrative that magic's super easy. You could just do it. And it's like, no, I've practiced my whole life <laughs> to be able to do this one <laughs> card trick. Come on. So that is, it's still something that all these years later, nearly 10 years later, mm. is something that magicians will still be having to answer that question of can we do the stuff in the movie. Caitlin and I can relate with that because people ask us about the movie Joker all the time. They're like, is Joker <laughs> reflective of the stand-up comedian's experience? And the answer is yes. 100%. Yeah. Uh, our life <laughs> is a billion-dollar movie. Yeah. And we're the scariest people to ever live. Um, I also, Kayla, I'm very curious um, for our listeners and just for us uh, to know a little bit more about how you – built a career in magic as well yeah that's a good question I don't really know uh, to be completely honest (laughs) sort of happened Uh, so I started doing magic when I was seven years old and magic is a really cool way of satisfying a lot of my brain half of my brain really likes science and math and logic and dogs I also really love dogs and uh, (laughs) no you're fine mine's literally next to me so 
the more dogs the better i but it also i really love making people laugh and entertaining people and magic was a was my ability to be able to do both of those things and so i did it for my whole life i went off to college had no intention of doing magic as a career graduated college got a job hated it dove into magic and i started out as a bar magician which i would bartend and then when everybody had a drink i would then do like a 10 minute show Right. It's a really good way to get a thick skin because everyone is drinking and they're loud and they're blunt and you have to Mm -hmm. deal with that usually without a microphone. And so you're just like, oh, okay, this is this is a good way to work out being a better performer. And then Mm -hmm. I moved. I'm from Connecticut and I was living in Boston when I went full time and then moved out to Vegas and then eventually Los Angeles and Magic in a sense, there's two parts to magic. One is that you have to run a business and the other is that you have to be the product. And so you you are the product you're selling yourself and your show, which means you have to also be constantly working on bettering the product but then also figure out how to get work and run a business so Mm -hmm. it's a there's a lot of trial and error magic is very much a mentorship community so a lot of people who have been in this for a while will help Mm -hmm. you out uh, and you can ask questions people write books and do lectures so it's Mm -hmm. cool because magicians often help other magicians Mm -hmm. which is really nice and I definitely would have no idea what I was doing if other people didn't help me many steps along the way even now me go like I'll call my friend and be like I don't I don't know how to fix this and we'll talk about it for a while and then it'll be fixed that's a really nice part of it and living in Los Angeles the magic community is really big and strong so it's really cool to be able to like absorb into that and learn from other magicians that's, That's awesome. so cool. We were we were lucky enough to see you perform at the Magic Castle a couple years ago. Yes. Yeah, that was fun. That was a blast. And yeah, we highly recommend your podcast because I mean, I truly everything I know about magic, I know from your show and from like w- watching you perform. So thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing that. I'm so excited. Thanks for coming to that. That was really it was really cool that we got to connect because Obviously, I listen to the, your podcast all the time. So I was like, oh, this is so cool. Let's have dinner. And so it was really fun. And I'm so glad. It was. We <sighs> still talk about it truly all the time. It was very exciting. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it's a special night. Uh, Caitlin, what's your history with this movie? I saw this movie not in theaters, but I saw it probably a year or two after it came out. I also am pretty sure I saw the sequel, but I have absolutely no memory of it and I don't know what happens in it. So maybe I didn't see it. I don't know. But I definitely saw the first one and I remember there being a big twist ending, but I didn't remember what it was. So it's when I was so watching funny, it, because it doesn't make sense, I was like, oh, why is that the twist? But um, <laughs> it was it was just a such a, a joy. <laughs> I was Dude. loving it. I definitely haven't seen the second movie, but I do remember there being like a not insignificant conversation because it did reach me someone who didn't see any of the movies but there was not an insignificant conversation about why they named the second movie now you see me too i think there was a lot of upset that of why it wasn't called now you don't which uh-huh. is the intuitive name for the second movie but they instead they didn't even call it now to see me they called it <laughs> now you see me too or an extremely now you see me movie this is this i mean i would say even more so than the original now you see me one is an extremely goofy movie it, it is <laughs> i never know what's happening i don't like 
people just keep stating each other's feelings about each other, but you never actually see the fact that it's true. It's, oh God, Officer Common. You're like, <laughs> what is going on here? And then it is, I'm, very, I'm so excited to hear your insight, Kayla, because for me, for a movie that like really harps on like explaining how the illusion is accomplished, Every explanation left me more confused than when I just watched it. <laughs> um, they're like, oh, no, there's a I still don't understand how their air duct works. Anyways, I'd never seen this movie before. And I was mm. waiting to watch this movie because I knew this is this episode's been a long time coming. And so I I've been waiting to watch it. And it didn't disappoint in terms of I heard it was really confusing and that the haircuts were very weird. Uh And in that way, I felt like I fully got what uh, I showed up for because the haircuts (laughs) were just next level. And the logic, the internal logic of the movie, the emotional logic of the movie, the characters, I had no idea what was going on for 90% of the time, but I was I was invested I was shocked that the the Dave Franco magic battle, I was like, what is this? (laughs) This is wild. Um, So I'm very excited to talk about it. 10 out of 10, no notes. That that scene, I did not see that scene coming. And then that was the point where I was like, is this, is that, is it? How do you do that? But that's, I I mean, but I can't tell, like, I'm very excited to hear a professional magician's insight because I'm like, is any of this possible? I don't know. I have some insight on that fight scene oddly enough and just in in general in the entire movie but this is also very important for anyone who this might appeal to but I cannot stress enough that if you're going to have some sort of skill in a movie that you're making Mm -hmm. you need to pay for a consultant yeah or like I would say cast people who can do magic and act I, or yeah. at least willing to like learn. <laughs> I've been able, I've been very lucky enough to consult on a couple of different projects. And one of which was a movie uh, that starred Rhea Perlman. And so I got to work with Rhea for, for like two months teaching her magic. And I mean, first of all, she's a gem. But also her dedication to making sure she could do magic enough. Like when you see her do magic in the movie she's doing it there's only Mm -hmm. like one time that there's a little bit of a edit but it's barely she's actually doing the magic and that's because she was dedicated as an actor to being able to do it now james Mm -hmm. james franco he does do the the back palm the card manipulation and he i believe he does actually produce those card fans which was like oh that actually takes a lot of practice that's a Mm. few months of practice oddly enough just that one Mm. producing two card fans in each hand maybe it was edited i don't know but he did the move exactly like he held his hands up and I went, you're back palming cards. And boom, he had cards. I was like, yeah, okay. I believe <laughs> I believe you had cards and I, that's awesome. And so I, cool. I appreciate that that was probably the reality. But the amount of times people don't hire a magic consultant and when you watch it, it ends up like this. You're like, there's so much more you could have known about if you just asked the right person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Were there particular things i mean and and we'll we'll get into the recap in a second but were there particular things that really stood out to you because i know that like there are certain things that happened in this movie where you're like well that just you can't just be in a bubble isla fisher (laughs) but were there certain things that really stuck out to you of like oh that was a severe like the actor clearly didn't know how that is supposed to look or be executed 
pretty much anything Jesse Eisenberg touches. Oh, <laughs> shots fired. I'm not afraid to say it. Well, <laughs> so I saw him before the movie came out. I, he was on Letterman and he did. It's a move that's called the snap change. It's a really popular social media video for magicians to make. It's basically holding a card up and then you, in a sense, snap the card and the card changes. Mm-hmm. But because he's not a magician, he didn't know how to talk to the camera people and they filmed it from the back. Mm-hmm. And so only Letterman saw magic. No one else saw magic. Everyone else saw how it was done. And he does it in the, he does it in the trailer. And it's also something that takes practice. But if you actually watch closely, it you can see how it's done. Uh-huh. And it's it's things like that that's like, oh man, I just wish I wish there was a little bit more attention to GTL. Obviously, there's lots of CGI and oh, all yeah. of that. But I think. It's the close-up magic for me that is what could have been. Because all the mentalism is fairly doable. All the pickpocketing is very doable. The escape that Isla Fisher does in the very beginning has been do- – I mean, no piranhas, but like that idea of going mm-hmm. in a water tank and then showing up in the back of the audience, that's done all the time. Mm-hmm. It's the close-up magic to me that was like, oh, man, you had to work hard in post <sighs> – to make that look good <laughs> that's by the way isla fisher, isla fisher almost died nearly drowned that doing that yeah. yeah yeah her chain got stuck when they were filming so again it's like i'm sure if they had a proper consultant that probably would not have happened were there do we know if there were con- ma- magic consultants on this movie there was uh blake voigt was the magic consultant on the movie i don't know his extended involvement i know that he he taught a lot of the back palming or the card the card moves to the magicians okay. he's also the magician who taught um uh-oh names ant-man how to back palm the card paul rudd thank you he <laughs> taught paul rudd how to back palm the the business card that shows up mm. in Mar- marvel movies oh. so blake voigt was the magic consultant but i don't believe like you need a magic consultant on the script also like right. a consultant should be going through the script combing through and going this is a bad idea let me give you 18 other ideas you can pull from and then going from there my guess would be that person did not exist I know Copperfield had a big hand in it but I think only in certain elements so I don't believe there was a, a good enough involvement from any consultant you can kind of just tell Mm-hmm. <laughs> got it okay that's good to know I mean with certain things I worked as a comedy consultant before and sometimes it's just like if you're not there all the time then it's like certain things can just slip through and then because of how production works you're like oh I guess that that's just there happy pride from tomboy x celebrating pride in the queer community all year queer founded queer run and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women Creating sustainable size and gender-inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit-tested for all-day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. For now. Okay. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Yep. Yep. All the time. <laughs> happens all the time. Yikes. Brutal. Let's take a quick break and then we will come back for the recap. And we're back. We're back. Ta-da. Shall we, shall we get into the meat and potatoes of... Oh, wait. I should have said, right when you said we're back... You're really digging a hole I, here. I, could have, I should have said, and now you see me <laughs> again. We're, Caitlin, this is a podcast. No one ever sees us. And that's, oh. in a way, the illusion. And now you hear me. Now you hear me. <laughs> now you don't because you turned off the podcast. <laughs> Okay, I'm in a weird mood. Okay, this is great. <laughs> uh, okay, so what have good luck? This uh, I do not envy you having to recap this. This is I did my best. I I trust you. So we meet several people at the very beginning, one by one. First is Daniel. That's Jesse Eisenberg. He's doing a card trick for a big group of people. It's a big spectacle. We meet Merritt. Woody Harrelson's character. He's doing hypnosis and mentalism for this couple who's on vacation or something. Mm-hmm. We meet Jack. That's Dave Franco. He does a Neo from the Matrix bending a spoon with his mind <laughs> trick, which no one calls attention to. Mm-hmm. Then pickpockets a guy with his sleight of hand skills. Mm-hmm. We finally meet Henley. That's Isla Fisher's character. She does a get out of handcuffs while in a tank of water trick. Mm-hmm. It seems to go horribly wrong with flesh eating piranhas, but it turns out it was all part of the illusion and she's actually fine. Mm-hmm. In all of these scenes, there is some mysterious hooded figure lurking around who presumably leaves behind an invitation for these four people. Daniel, Merritt, Henley, and Jack all show up to the address on the invitation. They go into the apartment where there are some 
tricks and puzzles, and then they uncover these digital blueprints for what turns out to be an elaborate magic show. It's funny because you can tell it is it, it is like fully CG, and so it's just like Jesse Eisenberg and Woody Harrelson looking at nothing and being like, whoa, <laughs> this trick is going to be wild. And like It's like hacker's style. Mm-hmm. shot also there's one shot in this movie where you're like wait isla fisher's a hacker and then it never comes back she's in front of like 40 <laughs> computers and she's like i don't know and i was like you can do that like they didn't realize but don't worry like many things in this movie it's not really relevant and it won't come back right so then we cut to one year later these four people have a show together in Vegas called The Four Horsemen. Mm-hmm. In the audience of this show is Morgan Freeman, who is trying to film the show. Also, Morgan Freeman, almost in every scene of this movie, is like with some woman. Lady? Yeah. We never learn who she is. I think she does have a name at one point. But I didn't I feel her- like rewinding Hermia? it to find out. Yeah, it's it, he says something like "thank you" and says her name, mm-hmm. but she never speaks. Correct. The whole movie. I felt bad. I was like, "Stop!" I mean, I hope that you know she was like paid well, but I, I was like, "You're wasting this woman's time." If you <laughs> give her a line or don't, my God. Right. Anyways, we're also about to meet Michael Caine's character. He also has a young woman as his assistant? Question mark. Her name is Jasmine, I think, which you learn in exactly one scene. She similarly has no narrative significance, no lines of dialogue. Oh, nothing. Incredibly bizarre to the point where I'm like, were large chunks of this movie cut? Because I genuinely don't understand why those characters are there if you're going to give them nothing to do. Right. Mm-hmm. Real fast. I want to just mention one scene and mm-hmm. how accurate it is because Ooh, yes. in in the scene where Jesse Eisenberg is going to hook up with the fangirl uh-huh. and he then sees a card and is like, I am now more interested in this magic thing. Mm-hmm. I cannot tell you the accuracy. <laughs> oh, no. There is a picture. I, I have to find it for you and send it to you so you can see it. It's a picture of four magicians Mm-hmm. sitting around a table what we call jamming so working out like playing with magic and showing each other moves and stuff mm-hmm. at a strip club mm-hmm. and it's there is a <laughs> naked woman and they are back to her playing with a deck of cards wow it is so you i i, I had to say in that moment i went ah okay whoever someone someone nailed that that was like the, probably <laughs> the most accurate thing of the entire movie about magic is it's like yeah Magicians are way more into props and magic things than they are. But this like Their hot woman that's ready lives. to hook up to them. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it was it was brilliant. Loved it. Gosh. Wow. Uh, the, okay. The way Jesse Eisenberg treats that poor woman made my nose bleed. I was <laughs> my God. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So at least there's some accuracy in this movie. That's nice. Yeah. Okay, so they have the show together in Vegas. We meet Morgan Freeman briefly. We also meet, they call him like their benefactor. I think it's like the show's financier, Arthur Tressler, played by Michael Caine. Who's like an insurance executive, bajillionaire. I was yeah. like, okay, is it explained? No. Did I miss something? No. Why is he interested in magic and how did he... We don't know. He... <laughs> I feel like it's revealed very, very late that he 
is it ins- like a nine figure insurance scammer mm-hmm. scion? Yeah. I just assumed he was like a generic rich guy, which Michael Caine plays all the time very well right in spite of his horrific politics but like <laughs> it's something that he does pretty often but when they made it really specific very late in the game i'm like wait how did this insurance guy get interest like how did he get connected to these magicians and they don't really tell you ah uh, anyways i have no idea Ugh, okay well as long as <laughs> as long as i didn't miss anything there's so many things where Mm-mm. i'm like did i lose a scene like did they drop a scene on the floor because i don't know what's happening <laughs> I feel like I've thought about it like, oh, yeah, logically, you know, Vegas show to rent a theater like that. It's probably like 60 to 80 grand a night because you have to rent it like you what we call four walling. Right. So you have to four wall a space in Vegas. But in order to do that, you have to have money. So you might have a benefactor. Obviously, they hooked up with this benefactor because the blueprints told them to. And I've put way more thought into the script than what they did. (laughs) Than the person who wrote it did. Right. That's helpful to hear, though, because I was just like, how is any of this very expensive stuff happening? And how is it worth it for anyone involved? And I just never really figured it out. Yeah. (laughs) Mark Ruffalo. Spoiler alert. Something, something. Mark Ruffalo. (laughs) yes okay so for the final trick of the show they announce that they're going to rob a bank they pick someone seemingly at random from the audience it's a french man named etienne they seemingly teleport him into the vault of his bank in paris france ever heard of it yeah via this teleportation machine slash helmet and then they teleport the stacks of cash in Paris, back to Vegas, and all of the cash comes raining down onto the audience. So it seems that they have successfully robbed this Parisian bank. Right. The next day, Daniel, Merritt, Jack, and Henley are arrested, and Agent Dylan Rhodes, Mark Ruffalo... Oh my god, I couldn't have told you that character's name with a gun to my head. (laughs) I was like, Mark... Ruffalo. That's all I had. Like there, I did not. Dylan Rhodes. Why bother? Yeah. So Dylan Rhodes from the FBI is on the case, assigned to him by his like superior, played by Common, who, as you mentioned, Jamie is in He's like in three scenes, He's coming and going. So Dylan Rhodes is on the case to figure out how they stole the money from the bank. Also assigned to the case is someone, an agent sent from Interpol mm-hmm. from France named Alma, played by Melanie Laurent. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, I'm guessing how maybe you say your name? It was pretty. It was Thank really you. pretty. You did good. <laughs> it was. Who Rhodes is reluctant to work with. The two of them interrogate Daniel and Merritt who don't give up any information and Daniel is all like, we're going to be so many steps ahead of you and you're not even going to know it. And then he throws his handcuffs onto Rhodes and we're like, woohoo. And then Rhodes has to let them go because there's no real evidence against the magicians, but he's like, they're going to do this again. And it seems like this was the first of three big shows that the four horsemen will perform. It is, it's so funny. Like, it's so, they're so rude. 
<laughs> in the interrogation. And this is like, obviously, this is an anti-cop podcast. But I'm just like, what do they think is going to happen to them? They're so confident mm. that they're not going to get arrested. And also, it's so like, early on, you're like, oh, this movie only cares about Woody Harrelson and Jesse Eisenberg. Correct. The two actors who are, I mean, I, I love Woody Harrelson. I don't love this character at all. Mm-mm. This character fucking sucks, especially because he leads by saying extremely transphobic fucked up stuff in basically his first scene yeah well no it's the misogynist scene and then the transphobic scene and then Mm -hmm. he sexually harasses isla fisher for the rest of the movie correct and then you don't get any scene of isla fisher's police interrogation but Mm -hmm. you do get 500 scenes of her getting sexually harassed by woody harrelson (sighs) i have a whole spiel on mess that (laughs) hated it anyways okay so then we meet thaddeus bradley that's Morgan Freeman's character's name. Good Lord. He is a former magician who now debunks magicians and exposes how their tricks are done. Mm. Rhodes meets with him. Thaddeus explains misdirection. He explains how they didn't actually rob the bank, at least not the way it seems they did it during the show. Rhodes learns that the teleportation machine just drops you into a room below the stage that looks like a bank vault. And Thaddeus explains how the four horsemen specifically targeted this French guy, Etienne, how they mind tricked him into going to their show. Okay. And how... <laughs> the way they mind trick him into going to their show is so expensive. Mm-hmm. I know that this is like, it's a movie. I get it. But there had to have been a smarter screenwriting way to explain how they got him there other than they all went to Paris and were like jogging around being like snap crackle pop (laughs) and he now he's in Vegas and you're just like as someone who knows basically nothing about magic never in a million years would I believe that unless you're telling me they're fucking wizards which I don't think we're supposed to think they are (laughs) right there is an element of magic that is all about influencing your audience and so there are Mm -hmm. elements where like in theory I could get you with some practice I'm not that good at it but I could get you to choose something very specifically that I wanted you to choose like that that's an element of it Mm -hmm. however would that then last months later (laughs) to the show and vacation you planned right no (laughs) like it works in the (laughs) no right now we're getting into like weird hypnosis mind control territory which Mm -hmm. is not a thing magicians have the ability to do (laughs) and so it's it's a very strange like i get the um when woody harrelson like kind of palms his chest and that hypnotizes him that's and i don't know much about hypnosis but from what i know that's uh, an element of kind of using that but Mm -hmm. that means that like how long were they Woody Harrelson would have had to like sit down with this guy and do what he did to the people that the couple on vacation at the beginning. This is not a realistic. <laughs> and I what am I also they don't explain misdirection correctly, which was just a massive pet peeve of mine. Ooh. Misdirection is not covering up so that illusion where the guy gets smushed and in theory he's in Paris yeah. is actually a, a play off of a real illusion. It's Michael Carbonaro did it on the Carbonaro effect, but it was originally done by a magician named Doug Henning. I can go on, but Mm. it's really cool where it looks like you're smushing a person or an object down. And then you have this clear disc where you see like the clothes they were wearing Mm. or Michael Carbonaro did it with dogs and puppies. So you see like the dog fur. 
And then you put the disc back in and it opens back up and the dog or the person is back inside of the machine. So it's really cool. That's mm-hmm. wild. But that is not misdirection. <laughs> I'm mad. <laughs> so wait, Morgan Freeman, a famous truth teller, lied to us? God, also like, oh, fuck Morgan Freeman. It's just, this movie is so messy. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of problematic people. Messy, okay. That's very good to know because I was, because of the amount of time this movie takes i would say like a good third of the movie is just explaining what happens in other parts of the movie and i was very curious as to like how much of this was rooted in any reality in the magic world some of it i felt like obviously wasn't but the more specifics it's like i don't know like so that's not it so they got the first thing wrong is what you're saying they also get in the interrogation scene where Jesse Eisenberg says, first rule of magic, always be the smartest person in the room, which is not the first rule. Of, it's not even on the rules of magic. That's not a thing. Like, no one. You don't have to be. We're just like, we're playing with cards and coins. It's great. No, that's never the thing. Uh, the first rule of magic is don't tell anybody how the trick is done, which obviously Morgan Freeman doesn't know. Uh, it seems like what happened was that the writers went, this is my guess, the writers went, you guys know that magician, the masked magician who revealed a bunch of magic in the 90s? We'll have Morgan Freeman play him and like explain how magic is done. Mm. Do you know anything about magic? No, but I know some words. <laughs> and they just put it into a movie. Right. And that's where we get, oh, yeah, here's some misdirection. No, no, no. Mm. Nope. That's a trapdoor. <laughs> there's no misdirection used in that moment at all. Like right. just the explanations of stuff were like, you had a magician. And you could have been like, hey, read this. How accurate is it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that magician would have gone, nah, nope, let me fix it. Yeah. Do, 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 do. And then it would have been better. But I don't know. <laughs> Here we are. We're, we're only still in the first half this, of the movie. Sorry, I'm already uh, mad. <laughs> um, okay. We're, yeah. So Thaddeus is explaining to Rhodes how the trick was probably done, how the magicians had already stolen the cash from the bank prior to the show and they just made it seem like the money was being stolen from Paris and teleported back to Vegas. Mm. Thaddeus also tells Rhodes about someone named Lionel Shrike. Which I kept hearing is Shrek. Shrek, yes, of course. I was like, (laughs) wow, great. Someone killed Shrek and I'm supposed to want to watch this movie. (laughs) Fucking unbelievable. And then that means canonically that Mark Ruffalo, spoiler alert, is Shrek's son. Uh, (laughs) Well, if he's the Hulk. Oh, green. Now I like this movie. Now I'm a fan. And I'm back. And I'm back. Actually, actually makes the greatest story ever told. It's the story about how the Hulk is Shrek's son. Wow. That all Holy gets answered shit. in uh, Now You See Me Too. So it'll be great. <laughs> right. And then furthermore, Now You Three Me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. So we learn about Lionel Shrike, a magician who Thaddeus had exposed in the 70s. Shrike then, I'm sorry, Shrek. Thank you. Tried to then stage a comeback, but it didn't work. He is thought to have drowned in the East River while performing a trick although his body was never found but then it turns out he actually did die during that trick so why were they like and then we didn't find his body (laughs) anyway then it's time for the four horsemen's next show in new orleans Rhodes and alma follow the magicians there 
they speculate that there's possibly an unknown fifth horseman who is orchestrating things behind the scenes. Also, Alma has been uh, reading about magic and she's reading about this guy named Shrike. I wrote in my notes at this point, it's all very Shrikean, <gasps> similar to Shrekian. Okay, so I'm, I am, we were on the same page where you're like, that sounds a little bit too much like Shrek in 2013, where Shrek was had been one of our most popular celebrities for over a decade. <laughs> Correct. Okay. Yeah, the, the screenwriter, one of many fumbles. Yeah. And Alma is all like, I don't know, magic is pretty cool. I like I like believing in it. And then Rhodes' whole thing is magic is silly and it's all fake. I am skeptical. I am Mark Ruffalo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then at the second show in New Orleans, Daniel Merritt, Henley, and Jack do a bunch of tricks. And then the big finale at the end is them redistributing Arthur Tressler. That's uh, Michael Caine. Arthur Tressler's $140 million dollars to the people of the audience. This is one of the more fun elements of the movie where it's like the parts where they're redistributing like nasty, disgusting wealth. You're like, that's, I wish I didn't hate these characters so much because (laughs) they're doing something that I fully support, but they're so unlikable. (laughs) I know. So the whole thing there is that the members of the audience were all insured by Arthur Tressler's insurance company, which screwed the people in the audience, completely screwed them over after Hurricane Katrina. So they get the money that was owed to them right out of Arthur Tressler's like personal bank account. The show ends, Rhodes and Alma chase after the magicians because they've just committed this big <laughs> theft. They manage to get away. Arthur Tressler is all pissed that his money was stolen. And he goes to Thaddeus to be like, hey, help me expose these four horsemen and bring them down. But Rhodes thinks that Thaddeus might be in on the whole thing. He thinks that maybe he's the fifth horseman. (gasps) So we're like, "Uh, red herring much? Which didn't make sense um (laughs) then Rhodes and Alma are able to track and locate the magicians in New York they are there for their last big show so Rhodes and Alma go to New York they find the apartment where the magicians are staying there's a big chase three of the horsemen get away but then there's this (laughs) magic fight between Rhodes and Jack, aka Dave Franco, who... he's really. I I'm so excited to hear your, your insight on that, Kayla, because I did not see that scene coming, and I was like, huh, huh, huh. like <laughs> it was. He was so ready for that in a way I wasn't prepared for as an audience member. Is now is now a good time for me to go into that because I would be happy to. It's <laughs> very it. brief, to be completely honest. Oh yeah, go ahead. If you if I were to say, give me the three things you know about how magic is done you would probably say mirrors Mm -hmm. magnets Mm -hmm. and hiding things behind your hand (laughs) Uh uh-huh and that's all they had that was it that was the entire fight it was like this is so this this scene right here showed no magician was asked about anything because clearly it was just the three things everyone understands magic is. It was, there were so many mirrors. Mm-hmm. Why were there so many? On, why? Wild. No magician. On, I barely have mirrors 
in my home. I have enough that I can go, do I look fine? And then I can leave. That's not a thing we just have lying around that are these massive, like, no, it doesn't come crap. Stop it. And then it's like, oh, yeah, boom, boom, cards. Now, I will say the accuracy of cards being thrown and it hurting is very accurate. Is it now? Okay. Very. So when I was a kid, I went to my very first magic convention. And we all threw cards. We tried to get it into the chandelier in the lobby. Um, we got in trouble, but whatever. And when we were throwing <laughs> cards, uh, they accidentally hit this person, and she had to go to the hospital because uh, <gasps> it it hit her eye. Like it Ooh. it was bad. Ooh. So this does happen. There was another person. She also got hit, but I think it just cut her face. But there was someone who had to go to the hospital. Um, so this is actually oh they, it hurts. I've been hit too, but not ter- Like I'm not injured, but. That is painful. If someone can throw cards really well, it can actually hurt. You probably have heard of Ricky Jay who can throw, who could throw cards into the outside skin of a watermelon. Yeah. Oh, whoa. Like, full pierce it. Like, amazing. So that's probably the most, like, yeah, okay, I see. But also even that, that's like a typical magician thing, being able to throw cards and it, like, hit things with accuracy Mm -hmm. so it's just a lot of really typical the only thing that was missing is him going abracadabra bitch as he jumped out the window (laughs) like that's the only thing they could have added that i would have been like yeah there that's the fourth thing you missed is some weird magic phrase otherwise Mm -hmm. it's just everything everybody thinks about magic and so it's there was just no creativity put into that mm-hmm. at all. There should have been an illusion. There should like there could have been a suitcase. He goes in and comes out of another one. Like there's tons of stuff you could have done with that. Right. Nothing. Which I feel like is must be even more frustrating because it seems like that is what is supposed to be cool about the movie. But then the one time they do it, they do the most boring thing. Yeah. <laughs> and then it just goes back to not making sense. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. It just, I feel like what they, a lot of people will be like, oh, we just didn't want to make it too out there. Like we wanted it for people to, we wanted people to know what was going on. And it's like, it's a fight scene. Right. right. You watch John Wick. Like that doesn't no make like, any sense, but it's happening. Most fight scenes defy the laws of physics. So if you also have magic in your movie, like, yeah, play with that. Take advantage of that. Right. There was so <laughs> much they could have done. Yes. And, like, I think I had, like, 20 ideas just watching it and was like, okay, I mean. You should write a movie. Now you three me, hire Kayla. <laughs> yeah. Now you three. Save the franchise. Uh, done. Now you three me is iconic. a very weird title for a movie, but I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. It's great. Okay, so there's this fight between Rhodes and Jack. Jack seems to be safeguarding this stack of papers. There is then a high-speed car chase in which Jack crashes, the car he's in explodes, and he seems to be very dead. The papers get rescued, though, and they turn out to be information about a company called Elkhorn or something. I lost the thread for a few minutes both times I watched the movie at this point. I don't know what these papers were. I don't know what Elkhorn is. I don't know anything about that. That was so confusing to me. You're not yeah, alone there. same. Okay, good. Much less Great. why Dave Franco would die trying to keep that secret. Not yeah, sure what I, I, he would stand yeah. to gain. Unclear. But the FBI thinks that the horseman's next target is a safe full of half a billion dollars, 
which gets loaded into a truck. So Rhodes and his people chase after it, but the safe turns out to be full of balloon animals. Meanwhile, the Four Horsemen's third and final show is happening in Queens, uh, which is just a show where the horsemen jump off a roof and then explode into money. They could, <laughs> which is kind of fun, but I'm like, yeah, it, it was weird that they really risked it all to just be like, bye. <laughs> I, if I had been an audience member in that show, I would be so disappointed because it lasted all of five minutes and mm-hmm. was not satisfying. So they explode into money. It turns out to be fake money, though, because the horsemen used the real money to frame Thaddeus and make it seem like he stole the money. So then Rhodes pays a visit to Thaddeus in a jail cell. Thaddeus explains how they must have stolen the real safe, how Jack didn't actually die in the crash, how they did a bunch of illusions and switcheroos. I'm sure that's perfect terminology well, I was like yeah, that's yeah. It. any notes any notes for us <laughs> no you're nailing it yep amazing <laughs> nailing it meanwhile in central park daniel henley and Merritt reunite with jack who is in fact still alive and they await the fifth horseman to reveal themselves and it turns out to be dot 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 <laughs> dylan rhodes aka mark ruffalo baffling playing the longest con i've ever heard of okay you ever do a con so long you become a police detective for like 20 years i'm like what are you talking about and also (sighs) we're led to believe that he would have been the one bankrolling this three-part show like this whole thing he would have had to pay for the magicians to fly to paris to mind trick etienne like he can't afford that but unless his he like FBI inherited salary. a massive fortune but you're like yeah i mean first of all whatever i mean the <laughs> there's multiple government agency there's like multi-level propaganda going on in this movie but like mm-hmm. on your average police detective's salary how is any of this possible i don't know and yet cops are still paid too much but uh... there there's all paid far too much for a job that shouldn't exist but like <laughs> But they're not paid like MGM Vegas, right? Five nights a week money. Like it's just well, it's so baffling. What about the eye? Like you know that you know that okay. club that completely makes sense. What about their budget? Because maybe they have a big budget that we just don't know about. So I couldn't even figure out how to work this into the recap. But there's also this like secret society of magicians called the Eye. They're vaguely using tarot cards for reasons. You're like, huh? <laughs> what? So apparently Mark Ruffalo's character is like one of the members of the Eye. And he is trying to induct the four horsemen. I don't know. I couldn't make sense of it really. So I left it out of the recap. But maybe, yeah, maybe the eye was bankrolling this whole thing. Point is, Mark Ruffalo, in a big twist, turns out to be the mastermind of the whole thing because Lionel Shrek was his father and he is avenging his father's death because all movies are about fathers and sons, of course. Yeah, famously they are. But also, (laughs) I would love a movie about Shrek's son avenging (laughs) Shrek's death. That is the one time I will majorly make an exception for my annoyance at the fathers and sons trope. Hey, Shrek 5. Shrek 5, they kill Shrek at the beginning. (laughs) 
<laughs> and Shrek Jr. has to avenge Shrek Sr.'s death. Yeah, <laughs> I would love that. Fingers crossed. Um, okay, so the reason that Mark Ruffalo was like targeting these people specifically, it turns out that the insurer who denied Shrek's family's claim was Tesla, a.k.a. Michael Caine. The bank is related in a way that I didn't understand even a little bit. No idea. And then the company Elkhorn started as a safe manufacturer and they made the shoddy safe that Shrike wasn't able to escape from and that's why he died doing that trick. So that's why Mark Ruffalo is targeting these people. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Specifically to avenge his father's death and get back at these people. Mm. So that's the story. Let's take another break and we will come back to discuss. And we're back. Okay. Uh, Kayla, is there anything that jumps out to you right away of like, well, this is weird or wrong? Or like, is there anything that you wanted to kick off with? Oh, boy. If not, that's fine. We've got plenty. Well, go through my notes. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, like, obviously the representation of magic is not 
great in the movie and we've discussed that but also the representation of women is pretty horrible it's also very bad (laughs) so i know you talk a lot about this on your podcast kayla how as far as the representation of women as magicians just as a career it's not the most common thing when magicians are represented in media women are often excluded women who are magicians you've told us stories about how there's just so much sexism in the industry. Mm-hmm. This movie does include a woman as a magician. Nope. But no, also, right. No. <laughs> right. Because you don't see her doing magic ever, really. She's, <laughs> I felt like she was, and I, that my feeling on, I just felt like it's, I feel like this also, like, specifically happens to Isla Fisher a lot, and she's very talented, and she's always, like, I feel like cast in these roles where she's just underutilized in a way that is very unfair to her talent, but even, like, it just felt like they fucking arranged this group like it was the fucking Chuck E. Cheese band. They're like, okay, three guys, <laughs> there's this guy, and then there's this guy, and then there's the goofy guy, and then there's girl no further personality traits she's just sexually harassed and we're told that she's interested in the main guy for reasons that are unclear and honestly baffling given the way he talks to her that's very true so uh funny enough i actually used to be in a tour i was in a tour for four years exactly like this where there were five magicians i was the woman but i will say this tour the producer and the magicians would go out of their way on a regular basis to make sure mm-hmm. I could never be portrayed as an assistant. And the best example I can mm. give, besides the fact that like I had my own stage time for 25 minutes by myself in the like doing magic without anybody else being a part of it, mm-hmm. that's great. But I remember specifically we were taking promo pictures and we were standing on this illusion and I just like put my my arm on one of the magicians just like because the show is very about our camaraderie. So I would put my arm on that magician and he goes, I really like that idea. However, I'm very concerned by the fact that you're doing that, that some people will think you're my assistant. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa, I didn't even think about that. Great idea. And because just the idea that I would like put my arm on his shoulder, someone could see that and go, she's clearly the assistant because she's attached to the male magician. Wow. So that is the level at which we have to think in order for people to not automatically think the woman's the assistant because that's the knowledge people have. Right. Now, they they also don't always think like, oh, wow, I'm seeing a woman perform magic that's cool, that must be rare. Not all audiences go to that length, Mm -hmm. but they definitely will assume that if there are two magicians performing together, one presents as a a male, one presents as a female, that the woman must be the assistant. Mm. And there's a lot of work you have to do. A lot of the duos in magic, they have to do a lot of work to make sure that she is seen as a magician and in this partnership. So when you look at this movie... I make the argument that the only time she actually does magic is in her solo show. She even references how she was Jesse Eisenberg's assistant. And a lot of women who who are solo performers now start off as assistants. So that's actually really common. Mm -hmm. But then going into the show, we see her carry the bunny. 
She puts the bunny in the box, right? Mm-hmm. Who does the magic? Jesse Eisenberg waves the wand. Yep. Who blows up the bubble that she then levitates in? It's the same mm-hmm. as who shows off the table and moves their hands as the woman gets levitated, the magician. She's not seen as the magician. She's the prop that's being levitated. Yeah. It's the same exact thing. We have on Shazam, we created a our own little test, which is called the table test. Which is, can a woman be replaced by a table with wheels? Oh, my God. And if the answer is yes, she's not a magician. She's an assistant. Mm -hmm. The script doesn't matter because you could put the script with anybody. But if all she does is the same that a table does, Mm -hmm. she's the assistant. There is no point in which she actually could not be replaced by a table. That is and bleak. narratively too, like not just her role as a magician who is not doing magic in the movie. I believe that Woody Harrelson's character would sexually harass a table <laughs> Where, in like, this context. So as we pointed out, like in that interrogation scene toward the beginning, there's a lot of focus in the movie placed on the two horsemen, Daniel and Merritt where Henley and Jack often fall into the background, which makes some sense from a screenwriting point of view. You can't have like tons of focus on like a bazillion different characters. There's often not enough real estate for that. But the fact that like Henley is one of the ones who falls by the wayside and doesn't get to do much, again, narratively speaking. And then even Jack, who is kind of right along, is with her in that sense of like, He's not given much focus, but then he is sort of toward the end where he's the one in that fight scene. He's the one in that car chase. You're you're meant to think that he dies. He definitely ends up having more narrative impact. than Right. I mean, it's like it it definitely by the end, like he's I mean, it's it's still dissonant. But like you're like, oh, Jack took on. I mean, it's like not like I preferred that you would think that Isla Fisher died like that's not. But but it's like he definitely took on more narrative meaning as it went down because went on right because then he's the one in the flashback who had broken into the safe and he steals that half a billion dollars and yeah so he's doing way more than henley and certainly daniel and Merritt are doing way more so she just ends up being the one character in these four horsemen who basically doesn't get to do anything and kind of you could write her out of the script and it would not change the story and it really at all. It felt to me like of the many dissonant, but like as it like pertains to her character, it felt like there was kind of this like empty movie feminism gesture made at the beginning of the movie because she says in her first scene with Jesse Eisenberg, like, I'm not your assistant anymore. You can't boss me around. Like, and it's kind of this like girl, like, and it's like, you know, it doesn't become an empty girl power moment if the story then follows through on that. But that gesture at the beginning was completely hollow because like you were saying, Kayla, she's completely treated like an assistant for basically the remainder of the movie. And so it's like, well, why did they even bother to have her say like, leave me alone. I'm not your assistant anymore when that is very much how the movie views <laughs> and treats her. So, right. and also she has no problem with it ever again. And in the same way where it's like, this is movie shit that is really like, I find it so frustrating, especially because it's like, oh, that has to suck for the actor who has to do that too, for like Isla Fisher. Um, when she's being sexually harassed by the Woody Harrelson character, which is all the time, she'll like, 
there should be like a term for what this is in movies where it's like she pushes back once but by the end of the conversation she's like haha you're you're wild you that's our mm-hmm. woody you know like at the beginning she's like oh i guess i'll when he basically says like well, I know you're in love with Jesse Eisenberg, which is the only way that we're told that she's in love with Jesse Eisenberg is by Woody Harrelson claiming it's true. I don't see it in the story or the characters right. at all because is he it is even true? Fat shaming her in spite of the fact that she's very thin, like just all of this wild, fucked up stuff. He treats her like shit, but Woody Harrelson's like, y'all love each other, and they're like, I guess we do, and like, <laughs> which is weird in itself. But then he's like, oh, well, you're a tight. Like you, you're a tightly corked. Like he's saying, "fucked up." Like you need uh-huh. to fuck me. Like he's saying, "I'll fuck you. Don't worry." And yeah. she's like, "Oh, well, I like she. She deflects, which kind of like, I mean, she could have fucking thrown something at his head. But in that situation, you're like, okay, she's trying to brush him off. Be like, leave me alone. Fuck you. Mm-hmm. But then by the end of the conversation, the script, which is written by three men, has her be like, ha ha. That's how it ends. She goes, teehee. She goes, yeah. ha <laughs> Over and over. And it's and right. it, and then we're led to believe it's not like a subtext moment of like, she's doing that because she doesn't know what else to do. I think we're when we see that, we're supposed to think it's funny and the character's fine with it. Right. Because, I mean, we're all familiar with the horror of being harassed by someone, but you work with that person or, you know, there's some circumstance that it makes it really difficult to push back on it because, you know, your job is at stake or, you know, something's at stake. Mm-hmm. But the movie doesn't acknowledge that in any way. And yeah, like you said, Jamie, it just like presents her being harassed as something that actually she might kind of secretly like a little bit. And at the very least, it's a silly joke. It's I think you're both nailing it. And with this particular issue, because women are so few and far between in magic it's probably about seven percent of anybody that's a magician from like a hobbyist to a full-time professional are magicians but only two percent of professionals are women Mm. so the the number is really low already and you don't see that that number is not reflected when people are first starting out in magic when people are first starting out in magic the majority of the classes are often women, are often mm. people of color. And you watch those people quit slowly as they go through magic. And it's because of it. they either don't see themselves reflected in magic, they come up against too many barriers, like, oh, my skin's not white, so I guess I can't use these props and there's nobody that makes them in my skin tone. I don't know what to do. Moving on. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, I don't have pockets and I need like some massive pockets in order to do this trick. I guess I can't do that trick. And eventually, I guess I can't do magic. This happens all of the time. Mm-hmm. But then when you start to add in more of the horror and harassment and bullying that exists because magicians are have a mentality that's still in the 50s, mm-hmm. you end up having... And you have a movie like this of a young girl sees this movie and it's like, cool, a woman, like she's doing magic. This is awesome. Whether or not they see her do magic, but they see this scene, that young girl is 100% going to be spoken to like that by an older magician at some point in her life. Mm. It just, it's going to happen at a magic club meeting, at a convention. It's gonna happen. And now she has watched this movie and it's in her head going, Oh, I should just laugh it off. Right. And right. like, that sucks. That's such trauma 
that she's later gonna need to work out in therapy I know so right like that is it's so impactful and already in a world where the lack of diversity is astounding and the lack of inclusivity is even more astounding you're like this movie doesn't help doesn't help us go hey actually like that's not okay and actually here's a woman doing her own magic and you know of course we can get into but I, I also have in my notes like Morgan Freeman the black magician quit magic to sell out for money and then got framed and arrested like, right why you know the one the one magician of color in the movie right. what are we doing so this movie just it I just doesn't help issues that we're constantly seeing the optics are so bad the optics are terrible mm. oh, tell me what you think about this Kayla so this is such a brief moment in the movie where if you blinked you'd miss it but I feel like there's something significant here where when the four characters are being introduced at the very beginning of the movie and we see Henley's solo act you know she's and I'm about to jump in this tank of water and if I don't escape in 60 seconds I'll be eaten by piranhas and then her two assistants who I think are are men rip off her clothes Mm -hmm. and then she's wearing this like sparkly bathing suit in a way that makes it seem like her act is sexualized to some degree Mm -hmm. is there like do you find that there is like pressure among the women who are operating on a professional level as magicians to do stuff like that to like have to kind of sexualize their act or like present as more quote-unquote sexy to have audiences engage with them more or like take them more seriously like is that is that a thing the first time I was told I needed to be more sexy on stage I was 13 (gasps) that doesn't surprise me but I am still horrified and there I mean it's like that shit exists in comedy as well but it it seems like this is it's like even more intense in magic good lord Magic is a couple decades behind comedy, if that kind of helps give you a, a, an okay. idea. is like it's everything that stand-ups and comedians have experienced, magicians also experience, but we're a little behind the progress. Mm-hmm. And so it is a thing a lot of women have just either chosen for themselves to be more sexual on stage Or they feel like that's the only way they can get work because that's who they see getting work. Mm -hmm. And what ends up happening, unfortunately, is that there's more effort put into appearance than there is the skill. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of people start to create the buzz of like, well, she's she's beautiful, she's hot, she's sexy, but she's real bad at magic. And then that becomes, well, all women are bad at magic. And that's sort of how the narrative kind of continues. I remember when I wanted to become a professional, I sat down with my friend who for her entire life, she's been the sexy one. Like she's always been stunning. That's what she's worked on. And I said to her, I don't want to do that, but I feel like I have to in order to get work Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. that seems to be who gets work. And she was like, don't do it. She just, she was like, don't do it. I'm aging. People won't book me anymore because I'm 45 and not pretty anymore. And, you know, quote, I'm not pretty anymore. Right. (laughs) Of course, she's beautiful. She's freaking stunning. But because she's getting older and you can tell people didn't want to book her anymore. And so she's Mm -hmm. like, if you can avoid 
having work because of how you look, then that's brilliant. And that's where I went, I think I should be funny. Because mm. I like being funny, but comedy doesn't rely on how I look. It, it doesn't have to, right? And so right. It, that that was a really big turning point for me where I was like, oh, thank God I don't have to do that. But it's really, really big in magic. And it's like the fact that that even needs to be a discussion is like a, you know, testament to where that particular industry is at. And it's like that that happens in many industries, but it seems particularly egregious in magic where it's like the fact that that's something that either of you even need to consider where it's like, that's not a conversation that men in that industry are having. They can just mm -hmm. do magic. Right. And to be clear, if someone wants to, in any kind of performance, like lean into sexiness or sexuality, that's fine. totally fine if that's what they want to do. Gender. It's more about like the pressure on specifically women to hypersexualize themselves in an effort to get booked on shows and get work and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah and I love like there was a an act that floated around. It was a viral video many, many years ago. And at the time, I, I really didn't like it. But I was quite young and like didn't have a good headspace for this yet. But she's a burlesque dancer and stripper who would do a magic trick where she would make a red silk vanish and then she would pull it out of an item of clothing and then take it take that item of clothing off mm -hmm. and then make the van make it vanish again and pull it out of another. By the time she's completely naked and she's pulling it out of her vagina and it was it was it's a brilliant act. Mm -hmm. It was so clever and smart and had nothing to do with sexuality and everything to do with just be wit it was like wit yeah. yeah and even though it's still very sexual and it's like that's to me the epitome of an act that can combine good magic with good sexuality mm -hmm. and what ends up and it's unfortunate that there are so many women in the industry that just care about the sexuality and really don't try to do good magic because mm -hmm. the sexuality is a crutch so they're happy to use it that's right. where I start, I, I'm like, oh man, I wish that that wasn't the reality. But there are tons of women in magic that do both and they're so good and it's such a great show mm -hmm. that I super support being as sexual as you want to as long yeah. as the magic is also something you care about. Sure. Mm -hmm. And it's like even, I'm, I'm sure they could be people who are perceived to be like leaning too much on any given thing. Like there's a greater context for that as well of like, well, you don't get there in a vacuum. It's yeah. how you're, you know, conditioned to value yourself and all like there's just it just seems like there's an incredible amount of layers in a way that again this movie does nothing to move the needle on and just presents the trope without any commentary or any indication on how it makes the person being asked to execute the trope like no indication on how it makes her feel other than that one mm -hmm. line of dialogue that is not followed through on in any way uh -huh. yeah um the last thing I'll say about Henley's character, which is like the other big yikes thing, is several comments made about her weight, mm -hmm. uh, where it's suggested, it suggested that Daniel stopped working with her because she was too heavy or too big and couldn't fit through a hole for a trick. It's kind of, you have to speculate here, but it's also like, did he fire her because she was too fat, quote unquote? And then later in the movie when he catches her on stage after she, the bubble pops and she falls out of the bubble, uh, he says, oh, I guess you have lost some weight. Mind you, we're talking about Isla Fisher. Just the suggestion that like Daniel was like, yeah, I had to fire Isla Fisher because she was too fat. 
it's just completely absurd and just like insulting top to bottom and baseline makes no sense and also and it's like on top of being extremely fat phobic in a way that in regards to this actor doesn't even make sense Mm-hmm. It also just like f- makes you hate Jesse Eisenberg's character, which I don't think we're supposed to. So it's like, right. Eh. Just like how we're supposed to be endeared by Woody Harrelson's character, even though he's making transphobic jokes and slurs and homophobic jokes, like Ugh. that whole yeah. disaster. <laughs> the other major thing I wanted to touch on was what I felt to be an extremely wedged in romance between Rhodes and Alma. Yeah. So again, Alma is the agent from Interpol. She's brought in. She's also like made to seem kind of like a red herring for a while. Like, Ooh, what are her motives? Why is she Which here? In some what ways is- I genuinely felt was an excuse to let Mark Ruffalo continue yelling at this woman yeah right because it was like anytime you were meant to be suspicious of her he would have a rude confrontation of her would like belittle her skill which you're like okay they're all fucking cops so who cares but it's like the (laughs) the movie took on a lot of opportunities to be like let's yell at her again it's like what I mean how many how many times did they mention like oh this is her first time off the desk oh she doesn't know what she's doing oh sit in the car sit in the car it was constant it's like part misogyny part bad writing part both you're just like this is just a mess even though she has the best instincts and is the best at her like detective job but yeah which I mean is is realistic where you know oftentimes the person who is overlooked and mistreated on the job is the best at it but because of their gender or race or any other number of factors they are disregarded and not taken seriously so that was at least realistic I guess but then it just means you have to see this woman mistreated by this character who turns out to be someone who we're also meant to be endeared to because it's like oh my god Mark Ruffalo was behind the whole thing he's the genius who wrote the blueprints or whatever Hmm. so that's and then the the romance between them i i've never seen a more wedged in romance suddenly they're kissing in the third act and it's like they even seem confused as to why they're kissing (laughs) they're like okay and then at the end he's like i have to come back for you i'm like no you don't she's an interpol officer (laughs) that you kissed one time what's wrong with you so that was very bizarre and another thing that only happened because she's a woman there wouldn't be some random wedged in romance otherwise but it's just like oh well we have a woman and a man next to each other in a story and heteronormativity dictates that they have to kiss yeah that was (laughs) egregious it's also slightly similar with the jesse eisenberg and isla fisher situation which obviously Mm -hmm. what when was that a romance they hold hands at the end that oh, was, I didn't even notice that. I believe it is uh. one of Isla Fisher's last lines in the movie. It was so bad that I was like laughing where she's giving her like corny end of movie line where she's like, even if we go to jail and even if everything, blah, 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 blah. And then Jesse Eisenberg interrupts her. He's like, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> and then and then it was like, oh, OK, well, clearly they belong together. He's being fucking horrible to her again. Cool magic (laughs) so obnoxious the jesse eisenberg character i have no i have nothing good to say Mm -mm. what a nightmare hated him 
hated the Woody Harrelson. I don't like when movies make me dislike Woody Harrelson. I resent it. He's so likable, and this character is awful. 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 Honestly, the character who, like, the least sleazy, most likable character is probably Isla Fisher's character, which is wild because you don't know anything about her. Like, like, she's also the least characterized person in the whole movie. I think if we if we ever were wondering like what's a quick example of how the writers feel about women mm-hmm. the line of when Morgan Freeman says to Mark Ruffalo what's the role of a magician's assistant and Mark Ruffalo goes she distracts the audience while he sets up the trick and mm-hmm. it's like well that's all you need that's mm-hmm. all we needed to know how you feel thank you very much done the thesis mm-hmm. statement of the movie uh, does anyone have any final thoughts? Got it all out. <laughs> the last thing I'll, I will say is that a better movie about the descendant of a magician seeking revenge oh. by stealing things of great value is Paddington 2. Yeah! Abracadabra! Yeah. Good twist. <gasps> That's the real twist. Mark Ruffalo. Oh, God. The Mark Ruffalo twist. I was dying. It's really funny. Because even like Mark Ruffalo doesn't look totally sold in his performance that what is happening makes sense. He's like, yeah, it was me. It was it was me. <laughs> so he's on a carousel. You're like, I got to get me out of here. Altogether, so, yeah. does so it good. even pass the Bechdel test? No. No? I don't think so. I don't think women interact. What I thought was interesting was, and this is not a compliment, but there's a number of, we, we've referenced some of them. There's a number of female characters who the movie does go out of the way to give names to. Audience members are given names almost every time. Other officers that only appear in one scene get names. The woman that um, Interpol lady rents an apartment from in New Orleans gets a name. Uh-huh. Like there's all of these women that get names, but then they never speak to other women. And sometimes, like in the case of the woman who rents the apartment, never speak at all, which right. is especially egregious because I don't think that there's like any, there's there's no women of color that have significant roles in this movie, even though they're mm-hmm. cast in like one-off lines or like in a single scene. Right. And then, I, and then it's like, Isla Fisher's kind of like being Princess Leia in this movie where she's like, she's not given anyone talk to or it's like isla fisher and the interpol agent are like princess leia in different storylines the movie could have so easily passed if isla fisher was to ask one of the women in the audience what their bank account number was but that did not happen right or if we see like alma interrogating isla fisher's character but that also doesn't happen also, real quick, the second show where they're stealing from Michael Caine and redistributing it to the audience who had been affected by Hurricane Katrina, there is a black woman who has a bank account balance that increases by $70,000. And we're like, oh, wow, this is great. Everyone's going to get $70,000. But then Everyone else gets the more next money. thing that happens is a white woman gets $280,000. And it's like... You can't just, if you're going to redistribute the wealth, you can't, what? I think that like it's the subtext of that was I think that they were trying to give each person what they were owed from Hurricane Katrina insurance. Mm. But it's like, 
it doesn't scan at all and it seem and it comes off very aggressive for no reason like right yeah and then like the optics of like giving one of the few women of color in the movie at all with lines no like way less like, mo- a, like four, a, fourth a quarter of, of the money, money that uh, then a white woman gets like what are you also she had 700 dollars like why did we need to make the black woman living in poverty yeah that too that's how she came in that's how she started like we did not help right what is happening <sighs> this movie sucks it's um, so <laughs> fucking lazy to the point where i'm like did the screenwriters even like register the optics of what they're doing it just seems like it was written in this bizarro white guy vacuum i don't know this movie <laughs> sucks so bad as most movies are <sighs> So our scale of zero to five nipples based on examining the movie through an intersectional feminist lens, I would give this movie zero nipples. Yeah. Now you see no nipples. No nipples. <laughs> I'll meet you there. No no nipples for the movie. I can't imagine how frustrating it is to be constantly asked questions about this movie, Kayla. <laughs> it's it's just constant. Listen, I'm going to I'm going to be a little controversial here and I'm going to give it half a nipple and the only reason why brave is that there was a woman in the magic show fair who spoke like that that's already a leg up than most magic things that exist so the mm-hmm. fact that she had a microphone during the show I'm going to give it a half. Oh my That's goodness. fair. Yeah. But what a what a low bar to set. I know what a stinky ass movie. Now I, I I'm now you three me canceled ruined. I hope that this episode destroy. And then there should be a movie about women doing magic for crying out loud. Are there are Truly. well, Kayla? Last question for you. Are there movies about magic that you would recommend to our audience? <laughs> I liked the Prestige. I like the Prestige too. I'm glad to hear you say. I that. have to watch it again, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't say you should watch the Prestige for like any sort of intersectional feminist fun. I think it's just I love Hugh Jackman, uh-huh. but other than that, no, not that I can think of. I'd imagine if we covered that movie on the podcast, it would similarly get. I like, don't think it would do very well. Movie. I just enjoy, it's just at least a competently made movie. <laughs> Right. It's a competently made movie. I So I'll tell you, the most accurate magic movie to ever exist is The Amazing Burt Wonderstone. It's a not a good movie, but it's the most <laughs> accurate to the magic world. Like okay. the opening scene where Steve Carell has the biggest bed in the world, that's like a straight ripped off of Chris Angel's life. So wow. there are a, a lot of that is very, very accurate. So if you want to know like what magic actually looks like, not a bad one to watch. Interesting. Okay. All right. Thanks for that, Rec. And thanks for coming on the show. It was such a treat to have you. Come back anytime. Please. And tell us where people can follow you, plug your podcast, etc. So you can find out more about what I'm doing. My website is magicinheels.com. And that's also all the social medias, Magic and Heels. And then my podcast, if you're interested in finding out about more di- about diversity and inclusion in magic and allied variety arts or lack thereof of diversity and inclusion in allied variety arts, uh, it's shazampod.com or shazam 
on all your favorite podcast places. Thank you both so much for having me. I'm so glad we finally did this. This is awesome. Appreciate you. Oh, we're very, very happy to have you. Thank you again. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bechtelcast. You can subscribe to our Matreon at patreon.com slash Bechtelcast. You get two bonus episodes every month, plus access to the entire back catalog, all for $5 a month. And you go get merch at tpublic.com slash the Bechtelcast if you are so inclined. Everyone, I have a confession to make. Yes. This may not make any sense, but um uh um it was me. Oh my gosh. Jamie, is your dad Shrek? My dad is Shrek and he died. <laughs> oh no. And so I became a cop and then I waited <laughs> 20 years and now I'm avenging Shrek. Wow, what a compelling story. What a perfect setup for a sequel that actually happened. Wild. Well, <laughs> goodbye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.